What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 39 of the Drunken Boxing Podcast, coming to you, as always, from the ever-increasingly less accessible capital of the Middle Kingdom, Beijing. Let's get right into some Mushin martial culture news. Currently, most of my time has been focused on the translation, dubbing, and editing of the story of Bagua Zhang series. I have released episode 2, 3, and 4 already. Episode 2 continues on with Dong Haichuan's stories and history. Episode 3 features a focus on Yin Fu's history. Yin Fu was Dong Haichuan's first and most senior disciple. Episode 4 was focused on Cheng Tinghua and his history, him being Dong Haichuan's second most senior disciple. I have already started working on episode 5, which focuses on the legendary Republican era martial artist Sun Lutang. The entire series will end up being about 8 episodes long, after which I plan to do some additional follow-up videos on the subject of Bagua Zhang and its history. In the meantime, if you haven't, go check out the already released videos on the YouTube channel. Producing these videos is a very difficult and time-consuming task, so any support you are able to give me on Patreon enables me to continue this work. Your support also helps me to keep the Drunken Boxing Podcast running. I also released another glimpse into one of the technical Bagua Zhang lesson videos of the Huajin online learning program, this time covering some of the China content within the system. So go check it out. All right, as we are finally getting to the end of summer in the Northern Hemisphere and the end of winter going into summer in the Southern Hemisphere, I will be running a promotion on all the Mushin martial culture merchandise available on our Teespring store. From now until the 15th of September, you can get a 10% discount on any purchases by using the promo code SUMMER22 at the checkout. That's one word, SUMMER, and then the numbers, 22. This will apply to all our merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, prints, etc. So get yourself a unique tea and celebrate the culture of these wonderful arts today. The store can be found on Teespring at the link listed here and in the show notes. As mentioned, another way to support my work is through Patreon. There are general support tiers through which you can do that. Any and all support is highly appreciated. Additionally, there is also a third tier, the Hua Jin tier, in which you can study the arts of Xing Yichuan and Ba Gua Zhang in depth. There is already a vast library of released lesson videos on both Xing Yichuan and Ba Gua Zhang, as well as their related Neigong. So if you are interested in learning these arts, give the course a try. The Patreon site may be found at patreon.com slash Mushin Martial Culture. That's Mushin Martial Culture, all one word. All right, let's get into today's podcast. My guest today is the one and only Randy Williams. Randy Williams, who prefers to be called the Sif, is one of the most well-known Wing Chun martial artists today. He began his training in the art under his first shifu, George Yao Chu, at the age of 13 in Los Angeles, California. He opened his own school in 1972, a school that would eventually grow to become the well-known Close Range Combat Academy, which spanned the globe and was established in 15 countries. The Sif went on to publish nine books on the art of Wing Chun, as well as produce over 50 instructional videos on numerous aspects of the art. He has been featured in multiple covers of Inside Kung Fu and other martial arts magazines. Let me tell you guys something. When I was a teenager and training, Randy Williams was like a demigod to many of us, and his videos and books were highly sought-after materials. They were extremely precious back then and difficult to get for us outside of the USA, and we were lucky to get our hands on them. Randy Williams also studied under numerous other highly regarded teachers, including learning Jeet Kune Do under Ted Wong, who was one of Bruce Lee's top students. 
Randy combined his learning from his teachers to create his close-range combat academy curriculum, which focused on keeping the art alive and effective in a changing world. Randy Williams was always focused on the practical aspects and application of the art in a real-world manner, so it is no surprise that his path led him into the world of personal security at its highest level. He has been in charge of the personal protection of numerous international names, such as Eric Clapton and Five Finger Death Punch, who he still acts in this capacity today for. He also went into the world of private investigation, and with his years of experience, is currently also the chief investigator for Black Stallion Security and Investigations. What many people don't know is that a few years ago, Randy published a book titled Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. While it is written in the style of a novel and features the character of Sherlock Holmes, this book is in fact a presentation of investigative work that Randy has done regarding the Jack the Ripper case itself. It has been featured in numerous articles due to the theory and presentation of findings regarding who committed the Ripper killings in England all those years ago. We get into this in this episode. I had a great time talking to Randy Williams, as he was someone I looked up to immensely in my younger days, and his passion and knowledge on the arts is still burning bright today. So with that, I give you the thief, Randy Williams. All right, welcome to the Drunken Boxing Podcast, uh, Randy Williams, affectionately known as The Seif. I'm very happy to, to have you on. I've, you've been somebody I've admired and looked up to since I was a kid, to be honest. Um, when I first saw you, I was in South Africa, and you were on the cover or inside uh, Black Belt magazine, inside Kung Fu, and um, I was very, very uh, enamored with you as a, as, a, as a young person who was interested in the martial arts. I'm honored to have you on. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And in, in honor of the Drunken Podcast, I poured myself a glass of wine. Well, that's the, that's the spirit. I mean, I usually tried to, my goal with these was to do them in person. Um, and usually where possible, if it's in person, we both have something to drink and it seems to be the way to go. So good on you. I'm glad you've done that. How are things going it's with in, you? In China. Yeah, I mean, where, where possible or if I travel. Yeah, definitely. I'm in China at the moment. I've been stuck here since COVID started, so um, haven't been able to travel as, as, as much as I'd like to. But uh, hopefully by the end of this year, they'll relax all their restrictions and we can move out and into the country a little bit more easily. Well, there's worse places to be stuck in China, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, now... F- a lot of the older generation martial artists and the people that are familiar, particularly within the Wing Chun circles, are, are familiar with you and your history. Um, but I don't know if you want to give a very, uh, you know, a, an overview of yourself uh, for, for the other listeners that, that might not be familiar with you. Well, I'm 108 years old. I've been doing Wing Chun since I was 13. So well over 50 years. <laughs> uh, I have my own chain of schools that are called Close Range Combat Academies, and we're in different countries around the world. And I used to have one in South Africa. Obviously, that's where I met you. Yeah. Um, but those guys aren't active anymore, uh, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, but I'm still active. Uh, I train here, and I live in Forest City, Pennsylvania. I live on top of a mountain on a dirt road. It's almost like a sojourn to come here. <laughs> and got a barn, which... Um, is fully equipped as a Wing Chun school with wooden dummies, heavy bags, speed bags, you know, wall bags, a weight room, uh, a cage, a matted cage. Um, 
And the guys that train with me are my private students, lifetime students, and they're called barn members because they come and they travel from all over the world to train with me here at the barn. And I um, occasionally they bring me to their schools in different places, cities and countries around the world. Um, the headquarters for CRCA right now is in Dusseldorf, Germany. Well, it's actually Duisburg, which is near Dusseldorf, mm-hmm. and it's run by student Mario Lopez. So he carries on teaching um, CRCA in his different branches around the world. And I've kind of, um, you know, slowed down a little bit on the international travel, especially with COVID. Nobody could travel. Right. Mario takes care of Europe, and uh, I take care of the United States and Mexico right now uh, because it's a little bit far for him to travel. So I I practice uh, my own form of Wing Chun, which is kind of a hybrid for my different teachers, and and I've moved Wing Chun forward. I believe that, like any science, Wing Chun has to move forward. Yes. And so I have created my own style of Wing Chun, which I call Close Range Combat Academy Wing Chun. And um, if you know a little bit about my history, you know that I've long been a proponent of ground fighting since the 70s. And in the 70s and 80s, it was kind of controversial. Lots of guys used to criticize me and say, oh, Wing Chun doesn't have ground fighting and Mm. so on and so forth. We don't need it. We'd never get knocked to the ground and that sort of thing. And of course, in the modern day, we know much better. Uh, and all these guys that used to criticize me are now ground fighting gurus that claim to have a secret ground fighting system that was passed down to their masters by Yip Man. And uh, somehow I got lost in, you know, they threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. I do recall but, that. I recall that criticism back in the day of you. And you were actually quite forward thinking and, and uh, you know, um, a pioneer in that field. And, and uh, of course, you were right about that aspect. So I do remember the criticisms that you got. And now suddenly your your critics are silent and repeating what you said. Yeah, exactly. But they all forgot, you know, the, the way they criticized me back in the day. So um, I stuck to my guns and I've been doing ground fighting in Wing Chun since the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, you know, now I've been sort of vindicated. Mm. And I guess I'm not such a pariah in the Wing Chun community anymore as I once was. Yes, I mean, that's that's all fine and dandy, but I do believe that people should be given the credit where credit is due. And you were, you know, one of the first proponents of this aspect of, of uh, realistic training. That was one of the things that I always remember about, about your approach and uh, everything that you presented. It was really based on the realities of what happens when you get into an altercation out in the real world. And um, yeah, I mean... Apart from your, your supremely sharp sense of humor, your skill was uh, totally uh, effective and, and focused on that. So, I mean, that was, that was what I remember. I actually remember I had a couple of friends and, and um, your VHS videotapes were like narcotics, you know. Everyone was trying to, trying to find them, especially out in South Africa where we barely ever would be able to order things from the States or things like that. So if somebody had a video of yours, I mean, that was... That was doing, you know, that was like uh, gold that uh, everyone was trying to get their hands on. Um, so, yeah, th- th- those, those were good memories. Wh- who was actually in charge in South Africa that, uh, that uh, um, you-, you mentioned? Well, I had um, Marcus, was my guy there. Yeah. He had a school going for a while there. Um, I'm trying to think of his last name right now. It escaped him, but it'll come to me. Mm-hmm. But he that brought me out there yeah 
And um, and I because it, it's been I think the last time I was in South Africa might have been 1997. Yeah, it was a while ago. It was in the 90s. So if you'll forgive me for forgetting, because he, he sort of dropped off the set, and I haven't heard from him in so many years that I've actually forgotten his last name for the moment. It'll come to me. Just 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 uh, just a little word. If you hear a little bit of this grinding noise in the background for some reason, about one or two floors above me, they've decided to drill. I don't know if they're looking for oil or somebody's getting a major root canal, but. Uh, yeah. Pardon the, the the background noise. Um, I don't hear anything. Okay, good. Um, I remember there was a. I think you did a performance on a wooden man in South Africa, and one of the things. And I was a teenager, and I think uh, what you did was you broke the arm, one of the arms off of that thing. And, oh uh, well, it must have been a really poorly made dummy then, because technically you should never break the arm off a wooden dummy if yeah. it's made right. The, the direction, Wing Chun motions are all what we call multi-directional. Right. So, example, uh, uh, what we call Jam Sao. Jam Sao means like chopping hand in the sense of chopping down a tree. And say Jam Sao is a palm up, straight-wristed, thumb tuck, inward, forward, downward, or upward, twisting, chopping block. Mm. And so, example, Jam would, to the beginner, they might think it's an inward 90-degree block similar to a karate inward block but it's supposed to go forward and inward and upward on the wooden dummy and so you're really just pushing the arm into the body uh, right. there's a square that goes through a square hole if the dummy's made right and it should push the dummy arm into the body of the dummy and then push the whole dummy sort of forward on those square holes and it makes the dummy sort of rotate on its axis a little bit and right. so you really should the arm but it might have been, you know, really flimsy or something because I don't tend to break them too much. Yeah, um, I'm, could I, be. You know what? I think if I remember right, it wasn't the arm that I broke. If it's the one that I'm thinking of, I think I split it in half because there's a move called Quaxao, which is spreading hands. And it's a double jam. And then you kind of curl your wrist into a double hunsa, which is like a mantis looking hook with your three fingers closed and two pinched, and you sort of spread the arms apart. Right, I and think it was that, actually. Two double low palms to the, you know, the midsection of the dummy. And I think what happened there, if I remember right, I think what happened was that I did the double jam into the double hoon, and I split the body of the dummy in half, because it might have been cracked. It's not like I'm super powerful, but I think the dummy might have been cracked, and I split it or something like that. I... I kind of vaguely remember that. It was a long time ago. Well, you've kind of just destroyed the the mytholo mythology that I had in my mind from way back then when I was a teenager because you're, you're saying that it wasn't due to power. No, I'm kidding. I mean, um, no, it was impressive nonetheless. If it was the fault of the dummy or not, it was impressive. But coming back to that initial action that you were describing with the inward coiling, uh, rotating, I mean, that's that's very much a coiling action of the forearm and the arm, correct, and the hand. Yes. Well, remember that Wing Chun is based on the movements of the snake and the crane. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, when you when you read the, the books that were available back in the day and they'll say, you know, Wing Chun is the snake and the crane. And they'll say, see the bong saw, the wing arm deflection. There's the wing of the crane. And then they'll say, Buji, that's the snake. Mm. And that's where it ends. But actually, there's a lot more. Uh, science based on the crane and the snake in Wing Chun. And so the coiling action of the snake, you know, snakes, 
they uh, first of all, snakes will will wrap around things. They'll snake around. Things. They will break bones. They'll crush. They will squeeze. They will kind of, you know, re you know, they'll sort of wind their way around the the people's arms and their necks and their bodies and squeeze them to death. Well, in Wing Chun, you might you know wrap your arm around someone's arm or neck and squeeze. Snakes spit. Um, snakes bite. Snakes live on the ground. So the you know who better to fight on the ground than a snake? They live on the ground. They fight from the ground. Yeah. Um, are are ruthless. Um, you know, people attribute. You know, we we, we will sometimes say that guy's a snake, meaning like he'll do anything to win. He'll fight dirty. He'll he'll do what he has to win without any regard for for your feelings or or rules or or kindness right and and i think aspect of the snake is part of wing chun and i and i think with the crane you know they say well the wing but if you look at all of the blocks in wing chun not just the wing arm deflection but for example the jam cell that i just described that has a 135 bend degree bend of the elbow that looks like a, a the wing of a bird and it flaps up and down uh as do all the wing chun arms have a 40 uh, a 135 degree angle bend of the elbow mm which is a certain kind of strength, which is kind of freaky um, because you can't bend it if it's done right. Um, snakes yes. have a lot of characteristics that are, that are part of Wing Chun that we don't talk about. Uh, cranes will, will deflect with their wing and poke with their beak. That's a simultaneous attack and defense. Or you could say, well, that's a headbutt. Or you could say, it's, you know, cranes stand on one leg. Mm -hmm. Well, in Wing Chun, we have Ma, the single leg independent horse stance where you're on one leg you, you're on one leg when you kick when you block with your leg when you um sweep when you avoid a sweep when you are doing um sticky foot on one leg um, when you do sulim tau on one leg so th there's a lot of characteristics of snake and crane that are sort of forgotten or or not known okay. that are part of the system it's oversimplified sometimes you know it's very interesting because i'm a xing Chen practitioner myself and what you described first of all with the coiling and twisting of the forearm is actually one of the core root actions of xing Chen. if you could if you could summarize xing Chen into a couple of sentences we'd say qi zuan luo fan qi zuan means rising and drilling luo fan means uh overturning and falling and that you could say is basically the core action of Xing Chen, and it's not just the forearm but it is the forearm and the whole body that does that but what you mentioned about 135 degrees is a number that my teacher because i'm sure you know the older ways of of, of the teachers they they didn't they didn't come down to specific degrees they would say okay bend it you know it's kind of bent almost straight you know some some wording like that is usually the classical instructions but my teacher took that further and was trying to find out the optimal angles. And 135 degrees is the angle that he came up with with regards to actions with Xing Chen as well. So I'm very, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, very enlightening to hear you s repeat the same angle and the same degree of, uh, of bend. Well, let, let me try to paint this picture for you. Let's, let's imagine that you had a post which was straight up and down, 90 degrees. Yeah. And you want to brace that post so that it couldn't fall over. Well, the optimal angle of the board that you would use from the floor to the post would be 45 degrees from the floor. That would be the optimal bracing angle. Yes. Well, 45 degrees, if you look at the complementary angle, if you took the floor and the board that you used, that would be 135. That's true. With 
45 creating a 180 degree spectrum. So if you look at that angle, if you take that board and you lay it against that post at 45 from the floor, and then you take the angle of the floor itself to the post, that's 135. So in Wing Chun, if your arm is bent 135 degrees, thumb tucked, elbow one fist distance from the body, your arm is almost unbendable. I mean, I do an experiment with my students a lot of times, and I'll try to paint the picture for you. But if you would imagine, what I'll do is I'll tell a guy to put his arm out in, in this job south position mm -hmm. with his wrist straight and his elbow bent. And then I'll stand behind him and grab his wrist and pull it towards his own shoulder. And I'll tell him, resist me. And they can never stop me from from closing their, their wrist to their shoulder. Yeah. Some guys are pretty strong and they can resist a little bit, but eventually it collapses. But then I tell them, bend your wrist 135 and your elbow 135, and then I'll pull with all my might and I can't collapse that, that which is now called Tan Sao, which is a palm up block. And that creates an angle that just can't be bent or can't be collapsed. That's, that's kind of a magic uh, angle, that 135. So it's, it, you see it in my legs. When I, when I first open my stance, I bend my knees with my pelvis cradled upwards. I bend my knees 135. And then I keep them bent 135, and I open my feet, pivoting on the heel, so that my toes go out and create a 135-degree angle between my toes. Yeah. And then I my toes into the ground, and I open into the Yi Ji King Young Ma Character 2 Goat Restraining Stance that yeah. everybody sees in the Dance of Wing Chun. And I open my feet. Till there are now they are now on a 135 degree angle to each other. So when you have your feet at 135, that gives you your stance wider than your shoulders, and you've got your feet at 135 in relation to each other, and your knees are bent 35, and now your stance can't be collapsed. Then you take and swivel one of those feet out till it's pivoted to the point where it's parallel with the other foot into what we call choma, which is sitting horse, and the choma position has the knees bent at that 135 mm -hmm. and you have this strong power base yeah that's 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 very that's very i mean the way you've just broken it down it's 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 exactly i mean th this is what always stood out about you but it's probably something that that has even developed even even more over the over time that that you've just given this so much thought that you're able to explain it in the most exact methods or the exact words and it's 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 in line with physics and the reality of, of the use. So I find that to be very important, particularly when when people are trying to understand the concepts and then apply them. Um, the 135 degree bend of the knee is exactly the angle that my teacher would describe with our primary posture in Xing Yichuan, which is called Santi Shi, the back leg. Um, the, the old sayings would be things like, okay, uh, the, the the weight is six four or seven three on the back leg. I mean, this is with Xing Yichuan with Santi Shi. Um, so the majority of the weight on the back leg and the back leg is bent more. The front leg is straight, but not straight, bent, but not uh, bent. And my teacher did exactly these experiments trying to figure out the optimal angle. And again, the back knee for him was 135 degrees. Um, so it all seems to be pointing at the same, well, physics, which govern everybody on earth and the human body. So this is, this is very, very interesting to hear. There's no real surprise there because all the Chinese Gong Fu art have root and you know so, so they're going to have these crossovers and there are certain truths that are become apparent when you've trained for many years so any good martial art system is going to arrive at these same 
truths. They're going to realize that these things are the optimal angles. These are the optimal ways to align the bones. So you're going to find crossovers, whether you're looking at Chinese martial arts, whether you're looking at Xing Yi Chen and you're looking at Wing Chun, mm. or if you're looking at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they finally realize the same thing because they come to the conclusion that this is the angle that's the strongest. Right. This is the way the body works. The human body is the human body, and I don't care what style. There, there are certain truths about the way that the human body works, and any good system is going to arrive at these crossover concepts and truths because they're the best way to do things so us old guys finally figure out that we can accomplish more by by fighting smart and using these angles and using basically geometry if you want to go go that route and and figure out the best the best ways to get something done right. so you're going to find crossovers in any good martial art yeah but the, the chinese particularly are going to have these crossovers because they have the same root. Right. And would you say, I mean, um, when you were explaining earlier about uh, what is colloquially known as mabu or horse riding stance, horse stance, etc. Uh, the, the angle between the thigh and the ground, um, you can see in today a lot of people are looking, and I mean, partially due to aesthetic reasons, partially due to competitive purposes, partially due to the performance aspects of things that have somehow colored a lot of things in the way people do things when they're aiming to go at a 90 degree angle with regards to their thighs um, being parallel to the floor and things like this i mean we don't do this in xingyi chuan classically of course we don't have mabu per se but even if we do have stances a 90 degree uh, angle or a parallel your thighs being parallel with the floor is probably the most unstable angle uh, with regards to well incoming force it would be, you know, there, there's a purpose for that, which is training and strengthening um, your Apart your from strengthening, yeah, of course. If, if combat is concerned, you want to be comfortable. You know, if your knees are bent to the extent that you're 90 degrees from the floor, in combat, you're not very mobile. You're going to be easily toppled. So you, you have to sort of, it depends on what you're training for. I guess if you're looking at trying to strengthen and you're going to sit there in that stance and hold it and strengthen your legs, then that's fabulous and that's that's the objective. Mm. But if we're talking combat, that's a whole different thing. You have to be comfortable. You have to be mobile. You can't be fixed in one spot. You you have to be able to move quickly and be responsive. Right. So you, it's a question of what you're training for. It's the same way as if are you training for the ring with with rules and with gloves. Um, or, and with a mat, or are you training for the street with with a concrete or sidewalk or pavement? Are you training for you know, bare knuckle fighting in the street? You have to calibrate yourself to that which you are training for. Yeah. And if your purpose is to strengthen or to be artistic, um, then then those ninety degree angles are are beautiful for for what they're designed to do, and it's an achievement in and of itself. But to to think that that's the way you're going to stand in combat you know that's not going to work very well i've, mm. I've i actually had challenger stand in a, in a similar stance and i was like really you're ready and he, he's like i'm ready and i'm thinking really you're going to stand like that <laughs> and all i did round kicked the back of his heel and he fell on the ground you know yeah so it, it's a question of what your what's your purpose and and remember what you're doing why you're doing it 
And as long as you have a purpose and that purpose is strengthening or being athletic or, or demonstrating or uh, an artistic expression, then yeah, that, that 90 degree bend of the knees is, is something that most people can't do and something that you can develop and, and then have a stronger stance that you can then relax and, and be, be a little bit more mobile. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. You started your, your training in LA's Chinatown. And um, as far as I recall, your first teacher was George Yao. Um, what got what? you? What got you into training with with uh, with with George, or in the Chinese martial arts at that juncture in your life? Well, I was always interested in the Chinese martial arts. My dad dabbled in it, and I always wanted to do it. But what happened was, um, you know, I, I was training in my garage one day. Just had my dad's old heavy bag hanging up, and I was in there training. And my next door neighbor is walking by and he stops and he's watching me as I'm hitting and kicking the bag. And he sort of stopped and watched. And then being a shy kid, I stopped hitting the bag. And he's like, he motioned to me, no, no, carry on. you know. Mm-hmm. So I started hitting the bag a little bit more and he was watching me. And then he came over to me and he said, uh, and at the time I couldn't speak Chinese. Now I do, but back then I didn't. And uh, he motioned to me sort of throw me a punch, you know, punch at me. And I was like, oh, I, I want to, come on, just give me a punch. So I threw a punch at him and he did this amazing combination, which I now know to be bong sao into lap sao and a punch, but it was so fast and it was so magic that I would just mind blown. And I said, you know, wow, I, I couldn't even believe, I, you know, do that again. So he says, you know, give me two punches. And I won two and he wrapped me up, trapped my arms and put a buji finger jab like a millimeter from my eyes. Right. And I was completely, you know, sold. And I said, I got to learn from this guy. And uh, there was, you know, he, he didn't want to teach me at first. I had to beg him and I had to get a neighbor who spoke Chinese to translate for me. And after I met a, a couple of his conditions, um, he decided that he would train me. And that was really how I started. Okay. And was it close by to you where he was teaching? Well, he didn't have a school. He trained me. Um at the at at this uh community center mm-hmm. in chinatown that was near our house so he just told me well meet me it was called the alpine playground bruce lee used to teach there okay uh, and he, he asked me to meet me meet him at alpine and you know at, at a certain time and i met him at alpine and he started training me there and it just went from there and were you the only person he was teaching at that time yes and did he did he ever formally have a, a, a full time school with many students following that? No. No. Uh, eventually, he eventually he started a club at his house, um, but he ne- he only taught certain select people. Now he worked in a restaurant. He was a cook mm. and a Chinese, but he his job was he was a cook in at a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. So most of the guys that he trained were were waiters and and cooks from the the restaurant where he worked. Okay. He had one guy that used to come to come train with us, who ended up becoming a kind of a big star. Mm-hmm. His name was John Owen, and he ended up get, landing the part of the Ice Man in a movie in the I think it might have been the '90s or the '80s or '90s. And then he ended up uh, starring with the guy from Highlander in a movie called The Hunted. Oh, okay. Uh, and he, he he's and he also played in a uh, opposite. Mickey Rourke in the Year of the Dragon. He played 
I think the guy's name was Johnny Tai or Joey Tai, the, the leader of the Chinese gang oh. in that movie, John Lung. And he used to come and train with us. And you never wanted to get into the movies yourself? No. I mean, I did a you know a couple bit parts in, in this old comedy called Kentucky Fried Movie that was directed by John Landis, who ended up you know being the director of the Blues Brothers and Animal House. But he wasn't famous back then. It was just a really low-budget comedy. Actually, and it was a, a, I remember a, that movie. Uh, it was a pistol and Enter the Dragon. Well, I mean, you definitely have the you have the uh, the looks, the ability, and the wit for 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 the big screen. Um, I still remember yeah. seeing your uh, Wing Chun Christmas carols that you used to uh, write up <laughs> on on Facebook a few years ago. They were the highlight of my festive season. Oh yeah, I used to do all the Christmas carols and change the words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> using uh, Wing Chun techniques, and it was just perfect. Now, um, you also, you mentioned Bruce Lee, but you also have some interaction and learning within Jeet Kune Do as well. Yes, I do. Um, so back in the day, Bruce used to teach. When I was a little kid, Bruce had a school. You could hit it with a rock from my house. Mm. And, you know, I was one of those kids that, if you watch the Bruce Lee Dragon movie, you know, I think, a bunch of kids were peeking when he was trying to teach. And um, I was one of those kids that used to go and peek in the windows at his school at 628 College Street, which was right next to my house. Wow. And he, But he, he would chase us away. But my, my next door neighbor there was Ted Wong, and that was Bruce's student then. Yeah. Arguably his student, but but and I used to go pull on his jacket, you know, the, Well, years later, after I had made my way in the internal and I was on some mic, invited to a dinner, one of my friends, Ted Wong, hey, I'm having uh, Ted Wong uh, and taking him out to dinner tonight. Would you like to join us? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, great. Mm. So, and I went up to see Wong Sifu and at the dinner and I said, Oh, Wong Sifu, so so pleased to meet you, sir. And he's like, Pleased to meet me. You're that kid that used to always pull my jacket. I remember you. He <laughs> says, You look at the same except now you have a muscle. And he said, I've been following your career in the magazines and I'm really proud of you and now I'm prepared to teach you if you want to learn. Wow. So I became with Wong Sifu and he became my Jikundo Sifu. How how did the the differences between your previous learning and your previous teacher and then your subsequent learning, for example, with Ted Wong, did were there similarities, differences? How did they affect you? More similarities than differences. Um, Wong Sifu, he he looked at the center line the same way that I do, and no other Wing Chun guy looks at the center line the same way that I do. So that was kind of weird. Okay. What I what I did was that. A lot of things that Bruce Lee taught him, you know, came from Wing Chun and were somewhat modified through Jeet Kune Do. But what I did was I took all this knowledge from from Ted Wong, from Bruce Lee, and I put it back into Close Range Combat Academy Wing Chun. So basically, I, I brought it back into the Wing Chun system. And so you, you could say I kind of Jeet Kune Do-ified my Wing Chun and, and took back the knowledge that Bruce took from Wing Chun and and 
somewhat modified into Jeet Kune Do, and I put it back into Wing Chun. Right. So the system is as much similar to Jeet Kune Do as it is to Wing Chun, I think. And I think that the, the way that Bruce Lee taught Sifu Ted Wong about centerline theory, for example, and, and many other things, um, was not really opposed to any of the ways that I was already doing Wing Chun. Right. So my 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 Wing Chun is sort of Jeet Kune Do-ified, if that's a word, and if it isn't, I'm making it into a word. <laughs> and it it affects my my Wing Chun greatly. Right. Did, what you mentioned some differences with regards to center line. I don't know if you want to mention a bit of that. Well, the way that that Wong Sifu looked at center line, or look, you know, he he passed. Yeah. years ago yeah um, the way he would look at the center line is the same as, as i do i i imagine the center line and and i've had this debate with a bunch of guys and they're probably going to hate me if they listen to this but the way i envision the center line the way i was taught and the way that i look at it now is that the center line is not really a plane or a line it's a plane okay. it, it, it connects your core to my core it to it, but it basically cuts through the surface of my body so if you imagine like the old westerns where these guys would put a rag, each each guy would have the end of a rag. I so what I, I at the center line is this plane that cuts through the surface of my body to my core and cuts to your core. I think your 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 microphone is being inter in, either fading out or or your connection. I'm not sure if it's the one or the other. Well, I do hear a lot of grinding there. I think they're doing that grinding at your house. Yeah, they are. But but for some reason, I don't know if it's uh, the mic. Your microphone itself, it's uh, it, it just faded out for a second there. So I didn't hear from when you said if you imagine uh, uh, a rag, and then that from there on it kind of just disappeared. <laughs> In the old Western movies, yeah, the, the guy used to take a, a long rag, yeah, and they would one put it in his teeth, one end of the rag, and the other guy would put the rag in, in his teeth, yeah, and then they would knife. Ah. Well, that rag in their teeth is the center line. Okay. So if you can imagine then this plane that connects your core to my core, and it cuts through the surface of my body, so no matter how I pivot, no matter how you pivot. That line doesn't change. Okay. It only changes to move my body because my core moves with me and your core moves with you. So that is the center line. Can you imagine that? Totally, because that's very much in line with how we understand center of mass in Xing Yichuan. The center of mass that we strike on is a connection between our center of mass and the opponent's center of mass. It's not one or the other because if you remove one of these two factors out of the equation things don't work anymore in the same way. Well, well, that's right. So, for example, if you hit someone on the center, they eat the whole blow. If you hit off-center, they're going to roll with the punch. Right. All the vitals lie on the center, in the core. Yeah. So if I had a gun with one bullet and I shot anywhere on that line, you're probably going to die. If I shot away from that line, closer to your shoulder or your bicep or your elbow or your fingers... The, the further I go from the center line, the better your chances are of surviving that shot. Mm -hmm. So we strike on that line, 
But more importantly, if you're if you're talking about the center line itself and how we use it, it's this connection of my core to yours. Right. So I, any blow that you throw towards me, I look at that as being like a pyramid, with its point at the tip of your knuckles, and the vertices would be the center your your own center line, your your self center line, which is a line painted on the middle of your body from your nose down your throat down your uh, chest and and right down your middle. It's like your zipper. If you imagine the zipper on your jacket, that's the self-center line. Yeah. So one of the vertices of that pyramid that I see coming at me is the self-center line, your zipper. And I think of your shoulder as being one of the vertices of the base of the pyramid. And your, the level of your elbow is the third vert, vortex or vertex. So, and the tip is your, your knuckles. So in order to use the center line effectively, what I need to do is I need to get the tip of my, what I would call my defense pyramid, so if I was using, say, for example, Paxo, slapping hand, mm-hmm. the tip of my defense pyramid would be my palm. One of the vertices of, of the defense pyramid would be my self-center line, my zipper. Yeah. And one of the vertices would be my elbow, and the other would be my shoulder. And so what I need to do to use the center line effectively is I need to get the tip of my defense pyramid between the tip of your attack pyramid and the center line, plane. Right. So if I can get the tip of my defense pyramid between the tip of your attack pyramid and the center line, I win in a nutshell. Yep, that, so that, that makes is perfect my, sense. That's my view of the center line theory, which is totally in line with the Sifu Ted Wong's Jeet Kune Do view of the center line. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I also recall Every- that your original, your original Wing Chun teacher actually had a strong connection to Hungar as well. Yes, he was uh, one of the top students of Chiu Gao, which is Chiu Chi Ling, the current um, grandmaster of Hong Kong. Mm. Um, he's the guy you always see with the wearing the leather bracelets or the leather wristlets with all the studs on them. Yeah, the, he was in like lots a, of movies. Yeah, yeah. So then, back in the day, he came to to America for the first time, and he stayed with me. And when I went to Hong Kong, he reciprocated. I went to to see him. And he took me to meet his dad. And his dad, um, when I got there, it was my Sifu Georgiao's brother, Tony, and Chiu Chi Ling brought me to Chiu Gao, the, the grandmaster. They brought me to his school. And I walked in, and uh, Sifu Chiu Gao was sitting kind of on a throne. And his wife was there next to him. And he had this, his leg was all wrapped up because he had gout, and, and one of his feet was all wrapped up in a bandage. Mm. So we walked in, and he says to the, the guys, who's this? And uh, they said, well, this is people George Yao's uh, top guy from America. So he says, you, kid. Well, of course, this was in Chinese. But he says, you. You talk Chinese? I go, yes, sir. And he goes, so you, your teacher was, you know, George Yao, which his name is Yao Chu, Yao Kuo Chu. And he goes, well, your teacher was George Yao, right? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, let me tell you something, kid. He goes, your teacher was the toughest, you know, and he used Chinese, but it was very vulgar, you know. So he says, your teacher was the, I'm going to approximate what he said. Can I curse on this you show? You can. Go ahead. So he said to me, in, in, in the equivalent in Chinese, but it basically comes down to, he says, your teacher was the toughest motherfucker ever walked through those two doors. And that includes those two assholes right there. <laughs> So, and from there, he demonstrated for me, and he showed me a bunch of cool stuff, 
And, uh, you know, he, and, and at that point I was like, wow, my teacher was, was that good? He was the best guy under Chu Cao, you know? Mm. And, and so I, I was kind of mind blown there cause I, I had no idea. I knew he did, he did Hong Kun, but I had no idea when Chu Chi Ling came and stayed with me and I took him around Disneyland and visiting friends and other Kung Fu masters and stuff. I had no idea that this dude was, was Kung Fu royalty, you know? Yeah. He was the of Hong Kun. I had no idea. I just thought he was some Hong Kun guy that was a friend of my teacher. And then I realized, you know, in the years, the subsequent years, that this guy was was royalty, and he's now the undisputed grandmaster of Hong Kun. I ran into him in Mexico a couple of years ago, and we had a, a, a laugh over this whole thing. He's, I think he's living in the States now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 he is. He is. I remember him. Um, I mean, one of the first exposures I had to him was, I think, in the movie Snake in Eagle's Shadow, um, mm-hmm. where he was the the guy that was breaking the bricks in the uh, demonstration for his Kung Fu school. And then afterwards, you he's around the corner and his hands swollen and he's wincing in pain. He was actually a very he had a very funny character, a very funny role. And many times in many of his movies, he's like that. But yeah, that's I, re- I remember him from from all from all those days. But that's a very interesting uh, story. So your teacher, I mean, did he ever teach you Hunga per se, or or did he just focus on teaching you Wing Chun? He really wanted me to learn Hong Kong. He used to tell me Wing Chun is kindergarten kid. You need. He used to always call me boy. Uh-huh. And he, he, Wing Chun is kindergarten boy, Hong Kun is college, and I would say, but but, you know, I want to learn Wing Chun. He's like, you need to learn Hong Kun. I was like, I don't really want to learn that. I like Wing Chun. <laughs> and so, what he would do is he would sneak Hong Kun into my Wing Chun training, you know, and he would tell me, well, this is Wing Chun. So, for some years, I had to separate. I had to figure out which part was Wing Chun and which part was Wing Chun. Okay. Okay, so you had experience uh, and exposure to both. I mean, I f- you, f- you find that is pretty common with uh, Chinese martial arts teachers who have more than one style under their belt. They'll, they'll teach you what they find useful as an amalgamation from, from the differing styles. Um, so. And also, there are crossovers. If you look at the traditional terminology in Hong Kong, yeah. they have a foot cell, they have a bone cell, they have a tan cell, they have... Um, the, the, there's a lot of things that are similar. Their stances are the main difference. Mm. Yeah, 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 for sure. Over the years of your teaching and traveling and developing your, I mean, your, your close range combat academy, how was that? How was that born? And and what were you what were you trying to aim for with all of that? Well, I um I primarily created PRC, the acronym. Yeah. Um. I primarily created that because I felt like I really can't um, change. I can't modify traditional Wing Chun from from any teacher in carrying on his name. That wouldn't be fair to him. And so the the what I had to do then was create my own that I could be free to add, subtract, take some from this guy, some from that guy, some from Bruce Lee. And I had to create the system which I felt comfortable with and I felt was effective. And I tried it in, in various forms to make sure it was all effective in combat. So in order to move my system forward, I didn't feel like I could say, well, this is George Yao Wing Chun or, or any other teacher that I learned from. Instead, 
I created this other system that was mine, uniquely mine, my own brand. And that way I would be true to myself and wouldn't be untrue to my teachers. I'm sure that anyone that taught me in my life would be unhappy with the system that I do now. But at some point in time, it's time to leave the nest and you've got to go with your gut and what you feel is right and what you believe to be effective and and worthwhile. And that's what I did. So in order to justify that and feel like I wasn't misleading people and saying, well, this is George Al Wingchun that I'm teaching you or, or anyone else, I, I felt like I had to create my own system, which I could feel free to add and subtract from according to my own training and my own experience. And, and I've been doing Wing Chun for 50 odd years. I, I think that if I'm just as qualified as anyone else in, on the planet to, to be a judge of what's effective and, and what, it, what makes a good martial art, especially as it concerns Wing Chun. So to do that with a, a clear conscience, I had to create CRCA. That makes perfect sense because, um, and it's, I, I know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound uh, odd here, but that what you just said is more in line with classical Chinese morality than people oh. actually understand. Because what, thank you, what people would think is that, no, it doesn't matter what you teach, you've got to keep your teacher's name on it. But what you just said that, no, I'm being honest because I'm adapting and changing what I learned in a way that I understand and feel it should be changed. And in that sense, I have to come up with a name and a, and a, and a, a title for it that does not disrespect that, that my teacher taught me, which might differ. And that is actually, that is actually why we have things like uh, uh, styles. In my particular style, the guy who created Xin Yi Quan, he studied a style called Xin Yi Quan which had a different character. It had the character for heart, not the character for shape or form. But he adapted mm -hmm. that and created his own thing. He didn't carry on calling it Xin Yi Quan. He called it Xin Yi Quan for the exact same reason. Um, and there's no conflict if, if, you know, I mean, there's, that is, in fact, the ethical Chinese way to do it. So what you've done is actually 100% in line with that. Thank you for that. So let's look at any science. You could look at medicine. You could look at, uh, mathematics, any science really, and you could say we could take the top guy from 100 years ago. So let's say in medicine, you could say Louis Pasteur was one of the top guys in medicine. Well, even like a mediocre doctor today is 10 times a better doctor than Louis Pasteur. But that's not a fair comparison because Pasteur was, in, was, was long ago and he operated on the knowledge base that he had from his teachers way back. But if you wanted to stubbornly cling to Pasteur's beliefs, you'd still be putting leeches on people and you couldn't deal with the modern problems. There was no AIDS. There was no COVID. There was no monkeypox in, you know, hundred years ago. Doctors today have to move forwards and, and create new systems of medicine, but they have to, with a bow, with a tip of the hat to somebody like Louis Pasteur, but they have to move forward because the need is there to move forward. Well, I believe that martial arts is the same way. I mean, would you want to go to a doctor from 100 years ago, a doctor from today, or a doctor from 100 years from now right. if the planet survived? Right. And it's the same thing. Do you want to learn how to fight from a guy from 100 years ago? Right. Well, if we look at COVID or, or monkeypox or, or AIDS, 
they didn't exist. Well, a hundred years ago, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu didn't exist. Right. Nor did, did Jeet Kune Do exist. So there are modern problems to deal with. And you can stubbornly stay in the past and say, I'm going to cling to that system the way my teacher taught me, the way he learned it from a guy a hundred years ago. Or you can take the reins and move your system forward into the present and the future and constantly improve it because you're qualified to do so. Now, if you're just some dipshit yeah, that's that doesn't, yeah. you're not qualified to create your own system because you don't even know how, how the old guys did it. And you don't even know that, that magic or that truth from, from a hundred years ago. But if you can take that and build on it and move forward, then you're a pioneer. But you have to put in your time. You got to pay your dues. You got to learn the old way, and then you're qualified maybe to move the system into the into the future. Yeah, very Just well like said. any doctor. Very well said. Yeah. You know, I, I remember you created an apparatus, the octopus uh, dummy. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, the octopus came about because. There, the Wing Chun dummy is limited to a certain extent, and this ties back into this whole centerline theory I talked about a minute ago. Mm. So if you imagine, if you're doing the, the, the wooden dummy form, the 108 movement, and you, and you begin the form, and you work your way over to a position where you have uh, the advantage of facing, which is not to be confused with the centerline advantage. Mm. They sometimes overlap, but they're not the same thing. But you work your way through techniques to a position where you have what's called the advantage of facing on the wooden dummy, where you're looking at him from an angle where you can hit him, but he can't hit you. Mm. And what happens is once you achieve that angle of facing on the wooden dummy, you're then forced to give up the advantage of facing by moving back towards the arms that are you're now facing away from and continue doing techniques. Okay. And that's when you're conscious of the fact that you've gained centerline advantage and facing advantage and now you're going to give it up and go back around the other side because you're limited to how far you can go around the dummy because you can only go so far and then you hit the cross beams. Yeah. So what I decided to do was to take and mimic the three arms that you see on the traditional wooden dummy, but add another set so that if you're, if you've moved off 45 degrees, you can continue going around the dummy and continue capitalizing on the center line and facing advantage that you gained by moving off to that angle because you've got another set of arms to work with. Right. Because if you look at the octopus, when you're, when you're standing dead straight in front of a traditional wooden dummy and you, you've got these two arms that are poking out at you at hundred or, or at, at that 90 degree angle, you're in the middle of them. And then the low arm, which is poking right at your core. And then once you've moved off 45 degrees, you now only have one arm on one, uh, on one side and the, there is no, nothing else to work with mm. because you've know, gotten to a point where you, you can't continue. So you've got to give up center line advantage and go back around. But with the octopus, you can continue to go around and continue to capitalize on those advantages that you've created for yourself through your technique and motion. And you can do another set to continue because what, what I felt the dummy did was it, it taught you how to get there. But then once you're there, what do you do? Mm. You give it, go back. But now with the octopus, you can get there. And then what do you do? Capitalize on that and continue to go that way for another set. And then you can come back and get three sets across the other way where you don't have to give up centerline advantage or facing advantage, but you can keep capitalizing it 
on it, one, two, three, till you're all the way at the other side of the dummy. And then, of course, you've got to give it up and go back around again. But with those extra arms, you can continue to capitalize, which is what you're going to do in, in, a, in a fight, in a combat situation. And rarely do you need to capitalize more than twice. Right. You get there, and then you capitalize again. And now you're behind the dude, and you can do what you got to do. And you've hopefully won the fight by then or won the advantage to the extent that you can win the fight. But if you give it up after one, you don't really enjoy the full benefit of what you earned, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. It also seems to be um, taking into consideration that once you've gained the upper hand by flanking and getting the correct angle, the opponent might actually recover without you moving. And this kind of kind of would, would emulate that as well without you having to build a habit of giving up the position, coming back to the middle and then restarting everything. You could continue directly off that angle as if the opponent had maybe recovered slightly. And then what do you do from you, there? Yeah. You have understood. Yeah. 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 That makes, that makes, that makes perfect sense. You have a lot of, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Everything in Wing Chun makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on the eyes and the ears that are looking and listening at the information. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you have a lot of experience in actual bodyguard work, protection work, um, uh, and, and the like, uh, how was that, was that always a goal for you to get into that? Not exactly, but sort of. Okay. So when I was a kid, I grew up, you know, watching the 1960s TV programs and my favorite show was this show called 77 sunset strip which was the, these three private eyes that had an, an office on uh, Sunset Boulevard next to, or in the same building as Dean Martin, who was a, a, a famous kind of playboy mm, singer, yeah. you know, Rat Pack, friend of Frank Sinatra. And he did actually have a club called Dino's on the Strip. And these guys had their office in the same building as, as Dean Martin's club. And these guys always drove the, the, the best cars and, you know, met all the hot women and traveled to exotic places and met interesting people and beat them up. And so I kind of always, I grew up thinking, that's what I want to be. Right. You know, that's, that's me. So I was always sort of thinking that that was my path in life. And it sort of intersected the fact that I was doing martial arts because I got some opportunities to bodyguard people because I could fight well, mm. you know, and. I was able to sort of parlay the martial arts into this security business. And then, you know, I was very fortunate in that when I was uh, growing up, some friends of mine, uh, uh, Alicia and Alan Yee, were, were friends of mine growing up in Chinatown, L.A., and their grandparents owned this restaurant called Madame Wong's, which was this really fabulous Chinese restaurant in its heyday in the 1940s and 50s. You know, all the stars would go there. It's the type of place that you would go to and see pictures of Frank Sinatra on the wall or John, you know, that had gone there and eaten and, and left their picture signed on the wall. So it was this really well-established Chinese restaurant. But in the 19 late 70s, early 80s, it was starting to, Chinatown was kind of starting to, you know, go downhill. People weren't coming there and the restaurant wasn't doing that well. And that was at the advent of the punk rock movement in, in California. Um, 
And so Alan and Alicia got this brilliant idea and they talked their grandparents into turning Madame Wong's into a rock venue. <laughs> so they started having these rock bands come in and, and bands that were doing well in that new wave and rock movement back then would come there and play. You know, bands like Martha and the Motels, mm. you know, the Motels are doing, you know, doing well and doing soundtracks for movies. Um, Oingo Boingo, they used to be called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, but they ended up doing a lot of soundtracks for the Tim Burton movies, yeah. the guy that did Bat, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, all that. Well, they did a lot of his soundtrack. So these bands, uh, The Knack, My Sharona, they started there. Wow. And so, so what happened was, this place started blowing up and everybody wanted to go there. And eventually the Rolling Stones played there. The Jay Giles band played there. The police played there. But as it was growing and getting bigger and bigger, there were problems. There were people stealing the money from, from the cat. There were people starting fights. So the, the Alan Yee contacted me because he used to train Wing Chun with me. And he says, hey, would you like to come here and be my security guy? So I did that. And as the club got bigger and bigger, I'm dealing with people like the police, the Rolling Stones, the Jay Giles band. And I'm starting to get experience with how they, you know, run their security and what they, what their needs were. And I ended up meeting these people that are kind of big in, in the industry. And then word of mouth, uh, a couple, there were a couple of uh, problems at the club that I solved. And these guys were like, Hey, you know, you're on the ball kid. You know, we like you. Hmm. And, name and number and they started giving my name to people that wanted security and that parlayed into U2, Phil Collins, um, different bands and I got my experience and it's kind of halfway with the martial arts and halfway with with just dumb luck. Yeah. Did Would you say that the experiences you had there during all of that uh, also molded and uh, influenced your perspectives and approaches to training? hundred percent because you know I, i'll give you a, a funny story that that would illustrate exactly what you're you're asking me yeah so i remember that my sifu george Yao was teaching me about bong sao which is the wing arm deflection so it's a 135 degree bend of the arm wrist at the level of your own throat um and it looks like a wing mm. so you know my chinese wasn't really that good it's, it's not even that fabulous now but it was you know much better back then but it really wasn't that good so when he taught me this wing arm bong sao wing arm deflection um i said well you know what i gotta try this out you know the next time i get into a scrape so i had this bong sao thing in mind and i'm, I'm practicing it and I'm, I'm training it on the dummy and i'm training it in a bunch of different ways and sure enough something came up where i had a scrape with a guy and he says we want to step outside i'm like yeah let, you know let's go outside so we went outside and I said, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to use this bong sao today, no matter what. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I could take this guy out, but I'm going to do so using bong sao because I have to see how the thing works. Yeah. This guy is throwing hooks at me and I'm trying to bong them and I keep getting hit. I keep getting hit and I got my face kind of beat in. And then I had to eventually do whatever I had to do to win. But like I, I came home all lumped up. So my teacher saw me the next day or two days later all lumped up, and he's like, what happened to you? And I said, well, I lost a fight thanks to your stupid bong sao. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, this guy's throwing hooks at me. And he's like, stupid? I told you it only works against straight punches. <laughs> and I'm like, 
foot, you know, because of my lousy chance. So I then realized that, you know, Bong Sao, and, and I, to this day, when I teach it in CRCA Wing Chun, I say, what three things must be true of the oncoming punch before you can use Bong Sao? Number one, it has to be a straight punch, mm. <laughs> thanks to what my face beat it. Number two, it has to come from the same side. So it has to be your left bong, his right straight. Right. And it has to be come from above the level of the bong sao arm. So I can't have my arm at a level where it punches below my hand and then drop down to do bong. That would be stupid. Mm. So I didn't know any of those things, and I tried to force it and didn't work, obviously. So, you know, if, if, to get back to your original question, I know you're probably sorry you asked. No, I'm not. But it's exactly... That's a, a perfect example of how doing security work and bodyguard work at that time was just security work um, molded my, my Wing Chun because I realized, well, that doesn't work, you know, and I learned it the hard way. If I would have just been better at Chinese, I probably would have saved myself an ass whooping. But I, but I don't think you would have understood to the same level. Well, but, but eventually I learned it, you know, the hard way, but I learned it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the experiences in that environment and in, in instances like this, is that what also gave you insight into the reality of the ground? Certainly, because I learned at a very young age that most fights go to the ground. And, you know, I, I got experience through George Yao and through my own experimentation with the techniques of Wing Chun applied to the ground. Mm. Uh, that I was able to deal with the situations on the ground using Wing Chun, but kind of, I don't want to say modified, but but looked at from a different perspective. Mm. Because when you're on the ground, you don't have the same leverage. You don't have your legs anymore, and not in the same way anyway. Yeah. You know, you use you end up using your flat feet on the ground for leverage. You can't pivot the same way. Yes, you can pivot, but you can't pivot exactly the same way. Your, your shoulders are on the ground, which limits your ability to retract your elbow. Mm. So you've got your elbow different so that your elbow doesn't bang the ground when you retract your arm. And you have, if you're on top on the ground and you pull a guy to your hip the way you normally do in Wing Chun to create a trapping situation where you can hit him but he can't hit you, well, if you're sitting on top of him and, you're, and you pull him to your hip, he can still punch you from the ground. Right. So you have to use what we call a bridge grab, which means that your arm is locked out. So now when you grab him left to left, if your arm is locked out and you pull with a long bridge grab, now you can hit him, but he can't hit you. And that is because, of course, you know, in the on the ground, things change. And if you pull him to your hip, he can still slug you. Right. If you're on your back and you grab his cross arm, you can't pull him to your hip because your elbow hits the ground before you can get there. And he can still hit you. Mm. But if you long bridge pull, you're, again, going to gain that facing advantage because you're going to be able to pull him to an extent where you can hit him, but he can't hit you. That's one example of many yeah. where you have to modify your Wing Chun on the ground, and that's what I've been doing since the early days. Yes, and uh, um, Wing, well, your your students are are lucky to to have have you had done that. You you branched out into detective, private detective work as well. Yeah, and that's really, again, going back to that 77 Sunset Strip vibe, mm. because when I was really young, I was fortunate to meet Bruce's wife, and she sent me on these missions, which made me like a you know junior Sherlock. Um, when I met her, I met her in this really weird way. Um, when I was a kid, 
there weren't VHS, there wasn't anything, there were 16 millimeter films, there wasn't internet, there wasn't YouTube. And I remember in Inside Kung Fu magazine when I was real young, there was a guy that was advertising Bruce Lee films for sale. And he was in Florida, I was in California, and his name was Elston Ransom, oddly. And he advertised these Bruce Lee films. So, you know, I sent him some money and I got my mom to write me a check because he would only accept checks. So my mom wrote me a check to Elston Ransom and sent it off and I didn't get anything. And it was months went by, I didn't get anything. So I wrote to this guy and I wrote to him and wrote to him and the guy wouldn't respond. And I mentioned it to my mom and he had cashed the check. So my mom was a legal secretary. She worked for an attorney and she says, well, you know what? That sounds kind of like fraud. She says, you know what? In the attorney's directory, you know, Bruce Lee must have had an attorney. So if you could find him, um, probably we could contact him and tell him that some guy is selling Bruce Lee films and not delivering. So I did a little homework and I found out that Bruce Lee's attorney was a guy called Adrian Marshall in Century City, which is part of L.A. So my mom looked him up in the directory and found his number and I called him and I said, hey, I'm this dumb guy in Chinatown and I bought these films from this guy in Florida and he didn't deliver. And Adrian Marshall says, well, you know, that's uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, Why don't you come to my office and we'll discuss this? So I said, well, where's your office? He said Century City, which is, you know, was from Chinatown. It was a. 45 minute bus ride. Mm. So my mom let me take the day off school and I took the bus and I went to Century City and I got to this, these twin towers. They're a mimic of the twin towers that got knocked down at 911, but the Los Angeles version. So I take the elevator up to the, one of the top floors to his office and I walk in and his secretary sitting in the, the, you know, the foyer when you first walk in. And I walked in and I was all squeaked up, you know, got got cleaned up and dressed nice. And I walk in and she goes, oh, you must be Randy. And I said, oh, yeah, that's me. And I, I'm here to see Mr. Marshall. She goes, well, he's with the client right now, so just go on in. And, well, my mom's a legal secretary. I know you don't go walking in when an attorney's with a client. So I said, well, I, I can't, you know, if he's with, she says, no, I think he wants you to go in. So I thought that was kind of odd, but I walk in because she told me to. And I walk into this beautiful, spacious office, this huge office with this amazing view of Los Angeles. I'm this dumb kid from Chinatown. I never saw nothing like that. And I walk in and I'm just dumbfounded. And off to the left is this big oak desk. Over it is this wall clock with a map of the world with all the different time zones on it. And there's this guy sitting there on the phone. And he kind of motions at me like, I'm busy. I'm on the phone. And then I look over to the right and there's a couch against that wall and there's a lady sitting there and she goes, hi, Randy, come here, sit down. And I'm like, oh, that's must be his client. And I walk over there and I take a look at her and I'm like, that's Linda Lee. Oh, wow. That's Bruce Lee's. And I go, are you Linda Lee? Yes, I am. I'm like, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, don't know what to say to her. She goes, come here, sit down. She says, Mr. Marshall tells me that you've been um, been robbed by this guy that's selling illegal films. I said, well, well yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, in a nutshell, she says to me, a lot of people are ripping off my husband's name and image 
and we're trying to stop them. So then Marshall gets off the phone and he comes over. Hi, Randy. You know, he's got this amazing voice. He sounds like a movie star. Very handsome dude. Sits down and we start talking. And the end result of this meeting is they give me a check for a couple hundred bucks and they tell me, go to Chinatown and buy everything you can with Bruce Lee's name or picture. So they said, you just buy everything and you bring it back to us next week. So I go back home. And I buy Bruce Lee punching puppets, Bruce Lee noonchuck hand uh, keychains, Bruce Lee posters, and I bring them back to them. And they say, this is not authorized, this is not authorized, this is not authorized. Mm. I can try to find out where they come from, where they get them from. So I go back and I'm asking the shop owners and I'm getting their contacts for who they're buying these things from. And I bring it back to Mr. Marshall. And he ends up prosecuting these people <laughs> then he sends agents to my house and the fbi agents are are asking me about this stuff and they're pursuing these cases and then mr marshall sends me to san francisco i'm just a kid i take the bus to san fran seven hours and uh i go up there and i do the same thing chinatown up there buy all kinds of stuff find out exactly who um is is providing these items and bring it back to, to Adrian Marshall and Linda Lee. So that was kind of like, I was like a junior Sherlock and I kind of became hooked on, you know, being a private investigator that tied in with my whole 77 sunset strip. Wow. Idolizing these guys. And I ended up, you know, moving forward from there and going that route. So they, they sort of dovetail together nicely. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that was a inadvertent, uh, what initiation into the occupation. That's very interesting. Um, a, lot, a lot of my, you know, my life has been kind of like a movie. And when I tell people my story, a lot of times they think I'm lying or it sounds crazy and unbelievable. And I, and I understand, but it, it really did happen. Mm. And so I had this kind of charmed life in, in a lot of it was just dumb luck and being in the right place at the right time, but with the right stuff. See, you could be in the right place at the right time, but if you don't know where to buy this stuff or you don't know all about Bruce Lee and you can't impress his wife that you're a, a devoted fan and, and loyal to Bruce Lee, or if, if, if you don't have the, the wherewithal, if you don't have what it takes to impress them, to make them want to take it a step further, then that chance just blew away. Right. And, and so... My my good fortune, the, the things that have come to me in life that seem like a movie, that seem like a fantasy, uh, came about because of just dumb luck, and but being in the right place at the right time and having the right stuff and, mm. and, and being able to impress those people with your skills, with your ability, whether it's at Madame Wong's and, and knocking some guy out that, that is causing problems and then they're like wow wow you, you know your stuff or whether it's in singapore guarding eric clapton and knocking three guys out because they bothered eric and then eric says wow you know you know your stuff let's go to london you know you're my new bodyguard it's a combination of just this dumb luck and, and then but but being able to back it up when it, the time comes yeah i mean you could you could i mean we sometimes over give too much credit to just dumb luck. I don't think it's just simply dumb luck. I think a couple of things. I think you were a devoted martial artist who used your time and efforts to train. 
Now, two people could be given access to teaching. One could train diligently and one could half-ass it and their results would be different. I don't call that luck. I call that determination. And the other side of, of, the other side of things, yeah, it's particularly with, with the martial arts and then this also goes into the, the field of work that you got into, I think intelligence has a lot to do with it. Um, I remember my teacher would often say to me, because we focus on training with a spear, and he would always say to me, the spear is not a weapon for stupid people. And, you know, I didn't quite understand what he was saying, but, you know, over the years, I mean, it's literally what he said, you know, it's not for stupid people. Yeah, that's cool. So I think there is an aspect to one's efforts Effort can make a uh, you, you can you can make a lot up with effort that you might lack in ability. So, if somebody's not as naturally talented physically as somebody else, but he has a lot of effort, um, he can catch up. In fact, a lot of the times, those are the people that you know surpass people with natural ability. But intelligence also has a lot to do with it. And I mean, this is what I've always noticed about you: your ability to explain things, but also your sharp wit is those are just factors and aspects of intelligence that is there. And I think this is what I don't think I wouldn't say it was just dumb luck that you you managed to show these people X, Y and Z, and then they were impressed. I think they identified these attributes that I've just mentioned in you and and they're useful in the field that you apply them to. So there's that. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I appreciate that. You know, I, 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 over the last couple of years, I know that you published a book uh, that was, I mean, you've published a lot of books on Wing Chun, I think something like nine or, or 10 or so. I, I might have, I might be miscounting that. You've published a bunch of instructionals. You've written a whole lot of things in the past, but you branched off into something completely unique in the last couple of years, which, which captured my attention. And, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't been able to get a, my hands on a copy of the book because I haven't been able to leave China, etc., for the last couple of years. But as soon as I'm, I'm going to travel, it's, it's on the list of, of books. But I've been following very closely uh, what you did with the book and what it is. And it's, well, maybe you can present it um, and explain, explain what, what, what that was and what led you into it. Well, I assume you're referring to Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. Yes. Well, you know, along with my, my career in private investigation and, you know, Wing Chun, I've always been interested in, in uh, true crime. It's something that my mother actually started me in because she used to always read those, those true crime books where they have pictures in the middle of the book that you're not supposed to look at, but you always look at them first. Yeah. And, you know... I was always fascinated, not not with the crime itself, but how they solved the crime and the logic that was involved. And logic, you know, I, I, I love that. I, Wing Chun is a very logical art, and it teaches you, it develops your ability to use your, your logic. And I, I was always interested in the case of Jack the Ripper because it was unsolved. Yeah. And I read every, everybody's book on Jack the Ripper. And I was never satisfied with anyone's solution to those crimes. I never felt like anyone truly proved the case. So I took it upon myself. I was traveling to London a lot on, on security work in something like 2012, 13. And I was going to London, you know, a lot. And so while I was in London, I went to all the crime scenes, the Jack the Ripper murders, 
And I really immersed myself in that case. And I said, you know what? I'm going to solve this thing mm. because no one else has solved it to my satisfaction. And I went to work on it, and I used Wing Chun logic greatly in my investigation. And I ended up stumbling upon some stuff that was very interesting, and I pursued it, and I created a system. I have a system for investigating crimes that I use, and it's largely based on Wing Chun. And I ended up stumbling upon and then building the case against these three men that were that were basically very, very tangentially involved in the crime. They were people that found bodies. And I found that in other cases, many other cases, the, the killer himself inserts himself into the investigation mm. by pretending to find the body or giving information to the police because they want to find out what the cops know. And so Jack the Ripper was really the first serial killer to do that. And by using this logic, this Wing Chun logic, and combining it with criminology, I figured out who Jack the Ripper was. And it was actually three men working together, being paid by a fourth. And so I solved the crimes to my satisfaction. And I was, again, dumb luck. I was put together with Dr. Michael Bodden. There was a case that was happening in this in my area of Pennsylvania that he was involved in, and I managed to meet him through one of my old friends and actually a student of mine who then became the district attorney of my area. So he was in charge of the case that Michael Bodden was in to testify in. And my student and friend, his name is Sam Sanguidolce, he's almost like my son. Mm. Uh, Sam calls me one day and says, hey, Dr. Michael Bodden's in town. Would you like to meet him? And I'm like, well, of course I would. So I snap up my Michael Bodden books that I had in my collection, and I zoom down there to meet them. And as I'm, I go to dinner, I get there a little bit late. They're all sitting there talking about this case of a serial killer in my area named Hugo Solinsky. And they're all talking about this case, and I just sit there with my mouth shut. And at some point, Dr. Michael Bodden, who is a very famous guy in America, he, he, he was involved in the Kennedy uh, autopsy, mm. John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe. He's the guy that recently determined that uh, Epstein didn't kill himself. Okay, yes. He who determined that Michael Brown, the hands up, don't shoot guy, wasn't running away from the police, but actually attacking them when he was shot. So Dr. Michael Bodden, he's a very famous guy. He had a show here called Autopsy on HBO where he talks about his famous cases. So I meet Dr. Bodden. I'm sort of starstruck, and I don't really get starstruck, but I was with him. And so Dr. Bodden, after you know an hour or so at the table, he says, who are you, kid? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a detective, uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of yours. And I said, and, and actually, if you don't mind, Dr. Bodden, I brought some of your books. Would you mind signing for, mm -hmm. them for me? He said, oh, you got my books? I said, yeah, I have all your books. He said, well, bring it on, kid. So I, I put the book out and he's signing them for me. And as he's signing them, my student and friend, Sam Sanguidolce, says to him, hey, Doc, you might want to get Randy's signature while you're at it. And Dr. Bodden says, well, why? And, and Sam says, well, he's a famous martial arts instructor. So Dr. Bodden goes, martial arts, really? What style? And I said, oh, it's, it's called Wing Chun. You probably haven't heard of it. He goes, Wing Chun? That's what my brother does. 
for 40 years. So Sam says, well, you know what, Dr. B, you might want to call your brother and tell him who you're sitting with because Randy's a pretty well-known Wing Chun instructor. So Biden gets on his phone and calls his brother, and he's like, hey, Billy, I'm sitting here with uh, some guy that does Wing Chun like you. And his brother says, oh, really? Who is it? And he goes, well, his name's Randy Williams. And you hear on the other end of the phone, Randy Williams? No way. Put him on the phone. So I talk to his brother, and he's like, oh, I'm a big fan. And so I said, okay, well, listen, tomorrow I'm going to see your, your brother in court, and I'm going to bring him some stuff, and I give you some souvenirs. So, like, I got a copy of one of my books and one of my magazines, and I signed them. And I brought them the next day to court. So we're sitting there in court, and the judge says to Dr. Baden, Dr. B, you can't be in here right now because you're a witness, so you have to leave. Which wasn't actually correct, but we weren't going to fight with the judge about that. So Sam says to me, listen, can you keep Dr. Baden busy for a couple of hours? Said, of course. You know, he says, you keep him company. So me and Dr. B go into the war room uh, in the courthouse where we have all the notes up on the wall, pictures, notes, witnesses, everything's written on the walls on, on blackboards. And we're sitting in there and Dr. Baden goes, hey, you want to see some gross pictures? Sure. So he laptop and he's showing me Marilyn Monroe's heart and Elvis's tongue and President Kennedy's brain. And he's got all these pictures from his, his exploits. So he showed me all this stuff. And I said, hey, Dr. B, you know, if I ever die before you, how about you do my autopsy? He goes, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. You know, he's got a weird thing. I want to see me dead. But so we're talking and he's showing me stuff. And a couple hours go by and we're running out of stuff to talk about. And so I go, hey, Dr. B, if I told you I solved the Jack the Ripper murders, what would you say? And he goes, well, in most cases, I'd say you were out of your mind. But, you know, I'm pretty impressed with you, kid. So, you know, I'll hear you out. We got time. Who was Jack the Ripper? And I go, well, it's not that simple, Doc. Jack the Ripper was actually three guys being paid by a fourth. And he goes, okay, you got my attention because I always felt that Jack the Ripper was more than one man. Mm -hmm. So let's hear your case. So I present him my case. And... He goes, so who was Jack the Ripper? And I go, well, like I said, it was more than one guy. He goes, well, who was the main Ripper? So I go, well, the main guy was a guy called Louis Deemschutz. I know you've never heard of him, but Louis Deemschutz. And he goes, Louis Deemschutz, Louis Deemschutz, Louis Deemschutz. Wasn't that the guy that found the body of Elizabeth Stride in front of the International Working Men's Educational Club <laughs> the night of the double? And I go, yes, he was. And he goes, okay, well, you're going to have a hard time proving that to me, kid because he was with the police when the second murder of Catherine Eddowes took place 0.6 miles away in Mitre Square. And I said, well, you're right, Dr. B, because he had, that's where the accomplices come in. They committed the, that second murder while he was with the police, faking you know, that he was all distraught over finding this body, but actually he, was, he had planned it that way. So he goes, okay, so who were the accomplices? And I go, well, one of them's name was Isaac Kozabrotsky. And he goes, yeah, he was one of the guys that found Stride's body. So I'm like, how do you know all this, Dr. B? He goes, you don't know? Well, no. He goes, well, I was paid by the British government in 1963 to solve the Ripper crimes. They brought me to London. They gave me all the available evidence, but I gave up. I couldn't solve it. So I explained him my case. And by the time I was done explaining my case, he goes, 
it if you can substantiate he says i've already i can verify a lot of what you're saying here but if you can substantiate this other stuff that you uncovered then you've cracked it so he goes i want your case on my desk tomorrow morning so i said yes sir so i went my case was already all put together really nicely so i put it in a fedex parcel and sent it to him i don't hear anything for about two weeks and I'm out at the back at the pond on my property. I'm taking my dogs for a walk. They're swimming in the pond, and I'm sitting there smoking a pipe, and my phone rings, and it's Dr. Bodden. So I pick up. Yes, sir. He goes, kid, I've been through your case. You've cracked it. We've got to get on this. Wow. We've got to get Cyril West involved and Dr. Henry Lee. And a week later, I'm sitting in front of Dr. Lee and Dr. Weck, present my case, and it was decided we were going to do this book. Okay. So you presented the the information, but you wrote it like a story. Well, what happened was, so Sam went with me. We went to Connecticut to meet up with uh, Dr. Lee and Dr. Weck, and we had Dr. Bodden on, on speakerphone. And we start talking. Now, it just happened that the reason that Dr. Weck was in Connecticut with Dr. Lee was that Dr. Lee was doing a symposium about how Sherlock Holmes changed the face of criminal investigation. So at, at, we're sitting here at dinner and we're talking about this, uh, the fact that Sherlock Holmes was, was the guy that got Dr. Lee interested in investigation. And Sherlock Holmes was the guy that got Dr. Weck interested in investigation. And Sherlock Holmes was one of the things that got me interested in investigation. And Sherlock Holmes was one of the things that got Dr. Bodden interested in investigation. So Dr. Bodden says, well, listen, nobody buys true crime books. Nobody reads them. We've all written a shit ton of them and nobody's reading them. So let's try to find a hook. Let's do something that's going to get people to read this book. So I said, well, listen, we're all here because of a Sherlock Holmes symposium. symposium. Why, don't, why don't I write it as a Sherlock Holmes book where Sherlock Holmes solves the ripper crime? And they all loved that idea. So that the, the, the pact was formed that we were going to do this book, and it was going to be written as Sherlock Holmes solving the crime. So basically, Sherlock Holmes does everything in this book that I did to investigate the crime. Right. And Dr. Watson does everything that Dr. Bodden, Weck, and Lee did to help me further the investigation. Well, that's, uh, I mean... The what has the public response been to the to the book? I remember I saw I read a few excerpts here and there, some that you you yourself have put out in the public, and I I quite like the fact that you also nicely illustrated combat that occurs in the book because you illustrated it as if a martial artist was illustrating it and explaining it. Sherlock um, in my book, sorry, and um, Sherlock does some some fighting in my yeah. book. It. And the, and the Sherlock Holmes in the novels, uh, in the stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, did a martial art called Bartitsu. Yes, Bartitsu. So, you know, it isn't a far cry that Sherlock Holmes would be interested in Wing Chun if someone had presented it to him back then. Mm. So in the book, someone does present it to him, and he learns it. And he uses it in, in, in the books to fight. So I, I brought together all my worlds martial arts investigation security and the love of sherlock holmes the love of mystery that's great um i brought in this book 
And the, the public response to answer your question, or your original question, has been pretty good. I've got, I think it's something like 300 five-star reviews mm. on it. It's doing well on Amazon, so a lot of copies. Uh, I'd like it to do better. Uh, I hope it does better. I managed to um, get it to Guy Ritchie, who directs the Sherlock Holmes movies, right. because he trains under one of his students in London. And I, again, dumb luck, <laughs> dumb luck. And I, you know, hook up with, with Guy Ritchie because he happens to train at the school in London where I was training, Kiwan Gracie. Right. And he loved the idea. And, you know, I have to be honest and say he hasn't got back in touch with me. And that was two years ago. Um, I'm still crossing my fingers that he reads, reads the book, loves it, and wants to do a movie someday. Well, I hope so, too. I know that you didn't end there with your solving of... Uh mysterious cases um i know that you had mentioned that you were working on another one uh something that is a little bit more closer to the heart of martial artists you want to talk a little bit about that sure uh i'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the death of bruce lee yes indeed and we're just past i think it was last week was the anniversary 49 years right uh, well i've always believed and i got information from my sifu ted wong that was his very close friend, yes. that Bruce was murdered. And by, again, dumb luck, brother, dumb luck, Dr. Michael Bodden has all of Bruce Lee's samples, his blood samples and brain samples, in his office right now. Wow. Dr. Bodden involved in Bruce Lee's autopsy. So Dr. Bodden is my connection to Bruce Lee's samples. Because back in 1973, when Bruce Lee died, people didn't test for certain things. You know, there, there, were, there are, I'm sure, ways to kill, poison someone using ancient Chinese uh, poisons yeah. that wouldn't have been before in 1973. So, for example, in the modern day, there's a chemical called succinylcholine, which is a chemical that can be injected into the body, causes all the muscles in the body to freeze, so that you're completely conscious and, and aware, but none of your bodily functions work. Mm. And eventually your stops and you die. So nobody would test for succinylcholine in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And only in the 2000s did people realize this is a way to kill someone. And they went back and checked some unsolved cases and found out that they were succinylcholine poisoning. Wow. We, we think that if Dr. Bodden goes back in and retests Bruce Lee's samples for chemicals that we didn't know existed in 1973, we may find that we can prove that Bruce Lee was murdered. Okay. And you also obviously not only have uh, given investigation and time into the method, but the also the reasoning for it or the motive. Yes. I, I strongly believe that Bruce Lee was killed because of the fact that he decided to go back to the States after having been rejected by the States. Right. You know, he was rejected for the, the lead in, in Kung Fu, the TV series mm. that was given to David Carradine because yeah. he didn't feel that America was ready for an Asian hero. So they rejected Bruce Lee, who actually came up with the idea for the show, and they didn't want to give it to him. They gave it to David Carradine. And Bruce was mad about that, so he went back to Hong Kong, where he had been a child star and a teen star, 
and he made these movies that we now know, you know, as as Fist of Fury and Chinese boss. Connection. Yeah. The boss, well, you know, it depends because they they kind of made some weird mistakes about how they named the movies, and so some people think of the Fist of Fury as the big yeah. boss and the Chinese Connection. But in any case, Bruce went there and made a sensation of, you know, in, in Hong Kong, and then his friend Sterling Silliphant, who was a big movie producer in America, yes, indeed, managed. Uh, Warner Brothers to feature him in Enter the Dragon. And I think that when Bruce went back to his bosses at Golden Harvest in, in Hong Kong and said, I'm going to go to America and make a movie, they said, oh, no, you're not. You know, you you belong to us. And he's like, oh, no, I belong to me, and I'm going to go do it. Oh, okay. And I believe he decided, okay, this guy's getting too big for his blitzes. See, back in the 70s, these movie stars that we think of as movie stars they were more like circus animals. Yeah. They were owned by the... They, they, didn't, they weren't glamorous movie stars that we think of. They were more like, okay, you got to do an appearance. Take this Rolls Royce, go and do this appearance, and get back here by 6 o'clock tonight and get in your bunk. Yep. They, were, they were more like circus animals. They were controlled by the movie studio. And I think that when Bruce bucked the system, he ended up uh, offending the, the triads or the, the gangs in, in, in Hong Kong that were connected to the movie studios, and I think they did away with them. I think they took Betty Ting Pei, who was a rising starlet, and they used her to seduce Bruce Lee, and her payoff was, after Bruce died, she she made all kinds of movies. None of them were a hit, because she sucked, you know, figuratively and literally. <laughs> and I think that she that was her payoff. But I think that when Bruce went to her apartment, she poisoned him using whatever was given to her. And of course, when Bruce collapsed in her apartment, she called not the ambulance, not 911 or the equivalent. She called His manager Raymond. Yeah. And Raymond Chow sent an ambulance. The ambulance didn't take Bruce Lee to the nearest hospital or the next nearest hospital or the next next one. They took Bruce Lee to a, a hospital that was owned by guess who Raymond Chow. Oh. And the doctor worked on Bruce Lee was an employee of, guess who, Raymond Chow. Right. So I believe that Betty Ting Pei was just used, and with her payoff was to become a starlet and to be given movie roles that she wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And I think that the motive of Bruce Lee's death was that he wasn't going to comply with the movie studio's wishes, which was for him to remain in Hong Kong and forget the offer of from Warner Brothers. And then, of course, you've got the triads that were always involved in the Hong Kong film industry. So that's a whole other side of it. Are you are you busy yeah. pre preparing to publish a book on this? Well, the thing is that I started going, you know, full bore on this thing a couple of years ago. And I got involved with this movie or television production company that was ready to back me on it. And send me to Hong Kong, hmm. and so that I could further investigate, and I could, you know, try to smooth my way into interviewing, say, Ting Pei and other people that, you know, that are still alive now. But they ended up um, kind of pissing off Bruce's wife, oh. and, and I don't want to say too much about that. Right, right. I want to say that too much, but they ended up not going playing by the rules, and they tried to bypass me. And they tried to sort of cut me out of the picture and then, 
you know, negotiate directly with Bruce's wife, and that didn't work. And, you know, Bruce Lee's wife remembered me from 1976, you know, when I worked with her. Mm. So had a good connection with her, and I could have probably made that happen, but they, once they found out that I knew her, they tried to bypass me and communicate directly with her, and that sort of collapsed the whole deal. I see, I see. So that, that kind of um, put the kibosh on, on my ability to get funded and go and do this investigation right. and then do this. So it's kind of on the back burner. I'm, I'm ready to rock. If there were somebody that was ready to finance this whole thing and do this whole mm. thing, I'm ready to do it. And I have Dr. Baden who has Bruce's samples in his office and, you know, we're ready to go, but there isn't anybody right now that's willing to finance. And that would involve like, I'd have to go to Hong Kong. I'd have to stay there for a couple, three weeks at least, and probably two or three different times. Because when you do an investigation, you open up doors that led, that sends you here, there and everywhere. Some of them are dead ends. Some of the people are dead. Some of the, the things that you follow up don't, end up turning into anything and some of them lead you up another alley so i'm going to guess that my initial trip would turn into another trip or or an extended trip and that that takes finance right of course and i'm not prepared to finance that whole thing myself i need a backer to do that well i sincerely hope it does happen because it's quite an interesting uh, uh you know what you presented and your ideas on it are very very interesting i mean there was always a rumor from when Bruce Lee died that he had been killed. That's not... And, you know, you can think that at the core of every rumor, there's a kernel of truth. So, you know, I don't know, think something like that would have popped up without... just out of thin air. I'm sure there's some reasoning why this idea came into the public back then even. So it's... A, well, as I read my pipe, I, I must say, where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Speaking of books on Bruce Lee, I don't know if you've read that, uh, I think it was about three years ago, a guy called um, Matthew Polly released a biography about Bruce Lee's life, one of the more recent ones. He's the same guy who wrote the book American Shaolin, but he presents some other aspect and his assumption is that um, Bruce Lee died due to a combination of ingesting, uh, he was ingesting hash, uh, combined with heat stroke because he had removed his uh, sweat glands from his armpit. And uh, I don't know if you've read this book, have you? I haven't read the book, but I know the theory about the sweat glands. I know that Bruce Lee removed his sweat glands. Um, when was the last time you heard of someone dying from removing their sweat Never. glands? Never. It's the first I've ever heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So... <laughs> My theory on that, so I can't, it goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, understood, understood. Um, so in, in, your, in your interests that you mentioned with regards to investigation, your mom got you interested in, in, in uh, true crime, etc. Did you ever watch a TV show called Mindhunter? Yeah, yeah, I sure did. It was very good. and It's kind of canceled. They didn't continue with it, did they? No, but it was popular. I don't know why they yeah they shouldn't have exactly. canceled it. I thought it was it was a it was a solid show. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I just wanted to vent my um, uh, level of uh, being upset with them canceling that show. But it's 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 a it's a good true crime based fictional you know series. 
yeah, it was. I agree. Shouldn't have been canceled. Right. Well, it's been very. I don't. I. It's. It's. I know it's getting late on your side. Um, it's been really. I could talk to you for hours. Um, this has been very interesting. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're still busy with because you know, in honesty, you used to be a lot more visible in the past. I know COVID has changed things. I thought, um, um, you know, you you've kind of retired semi but i'm glad to hear that that's not really the case you've just you're carrying on you're doing your thing i i i don't know if you're wanting to be more public with a lot of the things you're doing or or you're 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 just trying to get on with your life and do it for your you know in in for yourself etc well to be honest i kind of dropped off the set because i got tired of all the petty criticism and the bs and people that don't really know me that just make assumptions and i got tired of of you know i was sort of a, I, I it sounds funny to say but i i believe that i was kind of an innovator and sort of a a catalyst to bring the western consciousness you know bring bring wing chun and bring chinese culture to the the western consciousness and in so doing I was sort of shot down a lot of times by people that really don't understand or don't didn't take the time to really look into what I was doing or saying, but just criticizing me a lot of petty stuff. And I just finally kind of dropped off the set because I thought, you know, I don't need this. Uh, I'm just as active as I've ever been, but I, I just don't project it to the public like I used to. Well, you know, with the, with the change of the way that the world ingests information today i think that all of that being said with regards to criticisms etc i think that you know you you can actually still continue to be public just with your own direct connection to the to the public in your own avenues and and things without even having to worry about um you know uh, the detractors per se i think you know it's something to consider I'm no less active than I've ever been. I'm just less likely to publish or come out and and in the martial art magazines, which I don't even think are a thing they anymore aren't. because now everything. Yeah. But I just decided that okay, the public in general doesn't really want me or doesn't really agree with what I'm doing, and at some point I just said, you know what, they can have it. Mm. There's all these new guys out there that are putting out these Wing Chun videos and and they're 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 kind of controlling the market and you know you guys can have it okay you guys can have it mm. if any of them actually came and sought me out I could probably teach them a thing or two mm. um, and that sounds stuck up to say but I believe it to be true that some of these guys that are the internet or YouTube gurus and Wing Chun could come here and learn something and and improve what they're showing to the public I'm sure they could but finally said you know what i'm done with all that i've done i did my part i wrote the books i did all this stuff you know there's master ken out there doing these comedy martial art videos well i did that freaking 30 years yes, ago. yes you did and they're still great even to this day <laughs> you know, I all that i got one that's got like 15 million views out there i haven't made a penny off it someone's made a fortune off my work yeah they didn't give me any of it, 
But at some point I just said, you know what? You guys can have it. You guys just run with it. You guys do it. I, I had my heyday. I'm old now. You guys do what you're going to do and more power to you. But I kind of got burnt out on, on just these numbskulls and dimwits and dipshits criticizing me. Yeah. And I just said, all right, I, I, you guys, you guys take over. You guys handle it. I, I, I did my part. The people that really know, know I'm still here. People seek me out to this day. And if they take the time to seek me out, I, I do train them and help them and advise them where I can. Yeah. But I kind of just got burnt out on that whole scene. I'm amazed that a young guy like you would even care who I am and want to talk to me. And, uh, and that's great. And I appreciate it. And, you know, you'll, maybe you'll revive some of the interest in what I do. Well, I hope so. And I hope so. It's great. And I, and I appreciate it. And Cause I'm one of these old guys. I'm one of these old guys. That's like, uh, I don't know. If you watch like an old Star Trek episode or something, they go to this weird planet and they find this old guy with pointy ears and they seek out knowledge from this guy. That, that's me now. I'm happy to just be that old, that guy. Okay. Well, I hope not only do people, you know, get rekindle their interest in what you're doing, seek you out if they're if they're so willing and able, uh, but I also hope that there's some some uh, exposure at least through the the little reach that I have with with this endeavor that I do here with regards to your book, your recent book. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope uh, I hope that there's a little bit more interaction and exposure in that regard. I will put whatever contact links or whatever other relevant information you want um, in the show notes. I'll get that from you later and we'll put them in. So anybody who's looking to, if they're interested in your uh, close range combat Academy or yourself or your books, etc., we'll put all of those links in, in the, in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been fun and it gave me an excuse to drink. There's, there's, there should always be an excuse to drink in my books. So, drunken kung fu show. Well, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. All right. Well, thank you very much, and you keep well, and we'll be in touch soon. It's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you. Bye bye for now. Mm-hmm.